Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. There's a story told about northern states' efforts to abolish slavery and help slaves fleeing the South. Wonderful white people and evil slave catchers. And in those stories, the slave loses out. So much of African-American history is on the cutting room floor. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up a nuanced history of the Underground Railroad and another sanctuary story, this time in modern hospitals. Also, how do we respond after yet another big storm? We'll dig in on ideas for resiliency in the face of climate change. And we'll try a more poetic approach to dealing with the weather and the way it's ingrained in the New England psyche. Finally, a long forecast storm arrived on Saturday evening and lit blue matches in the sky. Thunder rumbled like the apneic snores of a sleeping god. If you don't like the weather, well, just wait five minutes. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. It was late October 2011. There were still multicolored leaves clinging to New England's trees when a freak nor'easter hit, dumping record snow, snapping trees, and cutting off power to millions. One year later, Superstorm Sandy battered the shoreline and caused tens of billions of dollars in damage. And then this week, a prolonged rainstorm with winds up to 70 miles an hour that lingered over our region, knocking out power for days in Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and more than 400,000 outages in Maine alone. Maine Public Radio talked to some of those affected. I come out and uh, there's a tree on top of my car. <laughs> it was pretty significant. It was uh, made, my, made my house shake. As college students, we're already on a tight budget, so having to throw out a fridge full of food was super wasteful. I remember the 1998 ice storm, so it was kind of similar to that. At least it wasn't as cold. David Littell is a former commissioner with the Maine Public Utilities Commission and is now principal with the Regulatory Assistance Project based in Montpelier, Vermont. He's been looking at the response from utility companies. What we would expect is a response that's consistent with a level of damage. So um, a lot of broken poles would require a bigger response than just downed um, lines. And here, from the reports I've seen, it looks like compared to an ice storm event, probably less poles are broken. But the damage across the region also suggests you're going to have more difficulty responding because the typical contractors that would come out from out of state may not be available. In other words, a main utility can't pull from Connecticut because Connecticut's already um, using their own folks and their own contractors. So you have to pull from a wider area. And this storm actually hit the Canadian Maritimes as well as and parts of the Midwest. So it means everyone's dealing with their own issues and there's less people available to go in and help with a more localized impact. Fewer people to to go in and help, and certainly this happens at a time when the entire United States, uh, Puerto Rico, uh, U.S. Virgin Islands are all responding still to uh, hurricane damage. I'm wondering if we might, as as a country or a region, need to start thinking differently about the way we respond to uh, electric 
emergencies, power being out for long periods of time, given that we have had this spike in unusual weather events and concurrent unusual weather events happening at the same time? I mean, I don't know, David, are we thinking about this the right way in terms of of how we plan for long power outages and making sure they don't happen? Whether we're dealing with them as a nation or regionally um, with adequate response capacity is is a, is a really good question. I mean, the magnitude of the the waves I saw in the Great Lakes from this storm were huge, 22, 23 feet. I mean, so this storm really, it, it hit multiple regions of the country, and it's really taxing our resources on, you know, coming after what hit Puerto Rico, what hit Texas, um, and what's what's hit other regions of the country. So um, the, the existing infrastructure and capacity is really being taxed to get multiple electrical regions online. And as I said, in, in the Northeast, we're fortunate this didn't hit during more severe winter conditions. Fortunate, maybe, but is good luck enough in a world with rising sea levels, warming temperatures, and more wild weather patterns? We sat down with two people who think about how to plan for new weather realities, Alex Felsen's an associate professor at Yale University. He's an architect who runs the Urban Ecology and Design Lab. David Corris is director of resilience at the Department of Housing for the state of Connecticut. I asked Felsen about one of the biggest problems facing our region, the amount of building we do right up to the water. I think that is one of our biggest issues. I mean, if you imagine uh, a world in which we hadn't developed um, or um, invested in infrastructure in air, in the floodplain or in zones that have flood risk, you know, we would have, be having a very different situation. We really wouldn't have the kind of issues that we have today. So I think the choice to the decisions that were made early on to invest in coastal areas, to build infrastructure and critical facilities, partly, uh, you know, alongside water for various reasons, that has um, created the kind of tension and the challenges that uh, municipalities face and that the state faces in terms of the amount of flood risk and how to transition from where we are today into a more resilient condition, you know, future. We've seen how time and again it takes multiple events for it really to get ingrained in people's understanding of that heightened risk. But with research like what's being done by Alex, we're starting to have the tools to provide a pretty convincing case that we understand not just where the trends are heading globally with climate change, but actually how those trends are going to bear out on New England. There's also been a lot of work done in Boston so that we can start to communicate with a pretty high level of certainty exactly which places are vulnerable and how that vulnerability is going to change over time. But but communication only goes so far, right? So maybe talk us through how exactly that communication turns into some sort of action because it doesn't seem likely that the the grand old wood structures that are built in floodplains along the New England shoreline are going to go anyplace anytime soon. No, that's absolutely right. I think, you know, we're starting to see action take place at multiple scales. We're starting to see regional planning organizations, the councils of government put together frameworks for resilience and focus on critical infrastructure. We're starting to see municipalities take action amazingly on their own. The building codes and the development standards in many of the towns east of New Haven are actually in excess of the state standards or the federal standards recognizing that inherent risk. When you get down to individual property owners, you're absolutely right. We have these grandfathered conditions, retrofitting them, even if technically feasible, doesn't fundamentally change the vulnerability. Maybe your stuff stays dry, but you're still cut off from the hospital, you're still cut off from emergency services. So I think we need to simultaneously look to those kind of neighborhood scale infrastructure solutions that can better protect those places that are not going to change over time, but also make sure that there are incentives in place so that, you know, people have options available to them so that 
when they are ready to move, uh, if they choose to live in some place that's less vulnerable, there's a mechanism for them to get out from under the property that's going to get increasingly risky over time. It's the difference between preservation versus transition versus doubling down. You know, there are some places that because of the legacy of investment and the presence of critical infrastructure, water pollution control, energy investment, we have to find ways to preserve them. There are other places like downtowns oriented around train stations that are up on high ground, which are the places where we should be doubling and tripling down on and making our future investments. And then there are those, those spaces in between where we need uh, to make sure that we put policies in place that allow them to transition over time without you know, people losing all their equity in their homes, without losing the character of our communities, but recognizing that there's no way to keep them the same place in the future that they have been historically. In just this most recent storm event up and down the coastline, we've seen massive power outages once again. And I guess I'm wondering, David, how we address that piece of it. If if our large-scale utility grid infrastructure doesn't hold up to a new reality of more storms, it doesn't really matter if the homes do or the neighborhoods are, are together. If people don't have power, they can't exactly live. What do we do about that? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So the utilities post-Sandy have done a lot to fortify their substations, particularly those along the coast. Uh, we've definitely seen a lot of work with tree trimming, for better or worse, but we saw less down power lines than we did before, even with uh, the Department of Transportation. I was with Commissioner Redeker yesterday, who mentioned how all the trimming that they've done along the highways resulted in not a single one of those corridors being out of service during this past storm. So there's little things that are being done, but also I think the, the mo- one of the more promising signs for the future is Department of Energy and Environmental Protection's focus on microgrids. And we now see six of them up and running. Some are powered by fuel cells. Some are powered by combined heat and power, natural gas turbines. We're also seeing a thermal loop in the planning process in in the city of Bridgeport. And those all can connect critical facilities so that those those most important services, whether it's water pollution control, uh, emergency services, continue to have power. We're probably not going to be able to keep power going to every single property, barring you know an undergrounding of the entire system, which is cost prohibitive. But if we can keep critical services up and running, and that allows us to restore power all the more quickly to those houses that that lose it, you know we can mobilize more quickly after a disaster. But before we run out of time for our conversation, I'd like to ask both of you to to maybe uh, indulge in a little bit of of hypothetical thinking. And and Alex, I'll I'll ask you first. So much of what we talk about is dealing with uh, an environment that we've built up over many, many years, many centuries, really, in a very specific way that we have to unwind and we have to provide more resiliency to. If you were able to kind of wipe the slate clean and, and start from scratch with a whiteboard and say, here's how I design coastal communities uh, for a real 21st century from scratch. What would you do? What are some things that you'd, you'd make sure happen? I think we have to start thinking about uh, a more, more of a watery landscape, uh, a landscape that couples ecosystem uh, ecosystems and other habitats with, uh, with housing and development. And so adapting these, um, these kind of intricate interactions, a coupled human natural systems to something more effective is the part that excites me the most. What's most interesting in, that, in this kind of thought exercise is you have the opportunity um, by starting from scratch to make sure you maximize co-benefits. So you wouldn't just build the community to be resilient from coastal storms, but you'd build it in a way that was economically and socially resilient as well. So I think some of the big changes you'd see is much more of the coastline being public, which would 
provide you know ecological benefits, storm buffer benefits, but also recreational benefits. We'd have a lot more of our coastline open for public use and and uh, recreation. You'd have more development concentrated in our downtowns and around our train stations, which would provide the co-benefits of more affordable housing, but also a type of um, commercial development that we now see as more attractive to the creative class and to the rising you know entrepreneurial lifestyle of the 21st century. Um, you'd also see, I think, more socioeconomic mixing, so vulnerable communities weren't weren't as isolated. And, that, and that's what's so interesting, I think, about climate adaptation and resilience is those same strategies that better prepare us for the 21st century's climate are also those that are best suited to help us meet our future prosperity objectives, our social equity objectives, and our ecological quality objectives. Uh, obviously, the, the individual property imperative that we have is one of the things that's going to be the, the hardest to, to solve and all that. But what are the other real tension points? What are the things that are keeping, David, from that, that from happening in the way that maybe you'd like it to happen? I mean, one of the biggest challenges is our reliance on property tax. And so we've, you know, carved up the state into jurisdictions that are exclusively reliant on generating revenue from the property therein. So, you know, whereas wetlands could migrate in inland from the coast as sea levels rise, the property boundaries don't migrate in, inland and the coastal communities don't get the benefit of property values as development moves moves inward. Um, that's that's a big challenge. And I think, you know, frankly, just economic resilience, having the resources, um, you know, growth can have a lot of benefits in that you can harness that growth to transition your community into something different. Um, and so, you know, having more development uh, impetus so that we can incrementally make ourselves more resilient uh, is, is crucial. A- a- Alex, are there, are there specific things that you think stand in the way that, that we need to overcome to, to look at that future that you're envisioning? Uh, yeah, I think that, that the, some of the biggest things that stand in the way are where decisions are made. Uh, what level, um, you know, where choices are made, I, I think, from the homeowner perspective, uh, from the municipal perspective. I think the, the kind of the smart choices that we could be making often fall into decision-making categories that, that either don't exist or that require uh, a substantial negotiation or that require funding that, that um, streams that we don't, you know, currently have. And so you end up with choices being made in more of a piecemeal fashion often uh, in, in ways that we miss out on opportunities along the coast. Maybe there's a raised road that doesn't take into account um, the opportunity to connect to other, neighbor, to other neighborhoods, or maybe there's a... Um, you know, uh, a, a, a berming strategy that that is uh, developed that isn't quite high enough uh, for uh, what it's trying to achieve. There's 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 a lot of those kinds of choices being made that that um, I wish we could uh, look at it more holistically or evaluate it in mul- from multiple perspectives before they're uh, implemented. Mm. Alex Felson, David Corris, thank you both for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. David Corris is Director of Resilience at the Department of Housing for the state of Connecticut. Alex Felsen is an associate professor at Yale University. Coming up later in the show, we'll muse about how the weather affects the way we think about our lives here in New England. But right after this, considering sanctuary, it's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. 
for immigrants in the country illegally. The fear of running into U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE agents, has made some public places appear threatening. In the current environment, that can even include a visit to the emergency room. For that reason, a recent opinion piece in the Journal of the American Medical Association called for an establishment of so-called sanctuary hospital policies. But some New England health care providers say they only have so much power. WBUR's Shannon Dooling has our story. In the chaos of a hospital, staff depend on procedure. So most have policies on interactions with law enforcement, like making sure to ask for a warrant or a subpoena. But what happens when an immigration agent asks about a patient? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we don't have any specific policies. And to my knowledge, there's been no discussion around being kind of safe haven hospital or anything like that. That's Rachel Labis, spokesperson for Signature Healthcare Hospital in Brockton, Massachusetts. We're required by law to treat all patients, you know, without regard to their status or immigration status. So that's not something that we've encountered. With President Trump's new, tougher immigration enforcement actions, many in the healthcare field may be thinking about this question for the first time. Advocates for immigrants' rights say hospitals would be wise to prepare for these encounters. Once ICE walks in, it's too late to, to be dealing with this. Sarang Sekavat is federal policy director for the Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Advocacy Coalition. It's really important, I think, that you know all the staff at hospitals really understand what these policies are and how they should deal with ICE. As of now, ICE considers hospitals sensitive locations, along with schools and churches. This means agents will often avoid making arrests in these places. But as we've seen recently in Texas, immigration officials are encroaching on these safe places. Ten-year-old Rosa Marie Hernandez, who is in the country illegally, was taken into custody after an emergency gallbladder surgery. Customs officials followed her ambulance to the hospital. These so-called sensitive locations are not enshrined in law. They were established in a 2011 Department of Homeland Security memo. And Sekovat, the immigration advocate, says they can be rescinded with a stroke of the president's pen. Joshua Abrams is an attorney for Partners Healthcare, the largest provider in Massachusetts. Like Signature Healthcare, it has no specific sanctuary policy in place. But Abrams says staff can try to remove themselves from the equation to an extent. We certainly have advised clinicians not to proactively ask about immigration status not to document it unless it's for some reason necessary for the care being provided. In other words, if they don't have the information, they can't share it. At Catholic Medical Center in Manchester, one of New Hampshire's largest hospitals, staff likely wouldn't even know a patient's immigration status unless the patient offers it up. Lauren Collins-Klein, a spokesperson for the center, says staff would handle an inquiry from ICE the same way they're trained to handle interactions with local or state police. The concept of a sanctuary hospital is not something that has been discussed in terms of adjusting policy or forming a new policy. Our first priority, above and beyond everything else, is to ensure patient care. But some physicians believe part of that patient care centers around making people feel safe. Layla Hagigat, a resident physician at Yale New Haven Hospital in Connecticut, says hospitals should be proactive about establishing sanctuary policies and getting the word out to the community. It would almost brand the hospital as such so that people could always remember in an emergency situation that there is not a barrier to coming into the hospital, that this is a place that I can go to 
where I don't need to think about issues of immigration and deportation and that my health care comes first. Hagigat says it's important to put a policy in writing and advertise it to undocumented immigrants because in the current climate, she says, they may be afraid to leave their house. That's Shannon Dooling reporting. The idea of providing sanctuary is a part of the New England mindset. Just a few miles from where I live in northwest Connecticut, signs mark locations of the Underground Railroad that helped slaves escaping the South. It's a story Yankees are proud of, but like a lot of the history we think we know, there are parts of the story that turn out to be a bit more complicated. Carly Krolick, a listener to the podcast Brave Little State, wanted to know a bit more. What do we know about the existence of a system to help slaves escape toward Canada? And were escaped slaves able to settle and live here openly? Host Angela Evansy went in search of some answers for her. Back in the 90s, in the town of Brandon, the 4th of July committee was looking for a way to help pay for their yearly parade. The town gave us $500, then we had to earn the rest of the money for the bands and the fireworks and all of that. This is Joan Thomas. She's a longtime Brandon resident. She was chair of the 4th of July committee in those years. And she got an idea for a fundraiser. We lined up, it was either seven or eight homes, seven I think, homes and one was a barn to show these secret spaces which were attics, cellars, holding rooms, and a tunnel entrance. A walking tour of these secret spaces, little cubbies and compartments that homeowners believed had been part of the Underground Railroad. And it was a huge success. Bernie Carr is the current head of Brandon's Chamber of Commerce. Back then, he was a board member. The various houses that had the rooms opened up their houses, let people go in their basements and their attics and their sheds and their shanties. It was just amazing. The first year we sold out, there were so many people from out of state uh, that had come. It was something. (laughs) We made six or seven hundred dollars on it for a chamber event, which was, you know, a lot of money. We only charged five dollars for the tickets, and I think we could have charged 25, and we would have still sold as many. The first tour was in the summer of 1995. It was such a success that Brandon held one again in 96. That year, they also sold a little cookbook with photos of the homes on the tour and old family recipes. And that, too, was a big seller. There was a third tour in 97, also very popular, but it was the last. I think the people with the houses decided they'd had enough of people (laughs) coming through their houses and walking through everything. These days, every once in a while, someone will float the idea of bringing the tour back. But according to Kevin Thornton, that's a very bad idea. I think people would say, you know, oh, we'd love to do this again. This is like the best fundraiser we ever had. But, you know, we really can't do it honestly. Kevin is a historian. He moved to town after the tours ended. But he says the whole Underground Railroad thing here is way overblown. As far as he can tell, there's only one piece of evidence of runaway slaves hiding in Brandon. It came from a local abolitionist named Jedediah Holcomb. He wrote a letter to a national anti-slavery paper, and it's very coy. He says something like, uh, you know, there are rumors of certain people coming through town and and being hidden here, and I'm not going to deny them, and that's all he says. Oh, so, and that's, that's like the best you have, it's just that little aside that he makes. Yeah. 
there definitely was a strong anti-slavery movement in Brandon, and I think people confuse that with the Underground Railroad pretty extensively. So there's this kind of mishmash of truth and rumor and wishful thinking that leads to this notion that every old house is, uh, you know, a haven for runaway slaves, and, you know, it just wasn't happening. I and many others disagree with them. Joan Thomas, the original tour organizer, has heard Kevin's critique, and she doesn't buy it. Just from all the stories that we have heard about the slaves running away and whatever, I just can't believe that it's not true. So I'm just saying who I am? Um, Okay. (laughs) I'm Jane Williamson. I'm the director at Rokeby Museum. Rokeby Museum is in Ferrisburg, and you can't really tell this story without going there. Rokeby was the home and sheep farm of the Robinson family. They were Quakers. Uh, There were four generations of the family who lived here. One of those generations featured a husband and wife named Rowland and Rachel. They were abolitionists, and they sheltered or aided dozens of fugitive slaves here on the farm. This happened in the 1830s and the 1840s. Rokeby's connection to the Underground Railroad is so legit that the museum is a national historic landmark. But Jane says that people come here looking for a different story than the one the museum actually tells. The lantern in the window, the hidden room, the loose floorboard. She says people are kind of obsessed with hiding places, like in Brandon, because there's this popular image of slave catchers prowling around the countryside looking for fugitives. But there's no evidence that that happened in Vermont. We're too far north. But I think that what we give them is actually more interesting. Take the story of a man named Jesse. Documents show he was enslaved on a small farm in North Carolina by a man named Joseph Elliott. When Joseph died, his son Ephraim basically inherited Jesse. There are tax records and estate papers that show all this. And then, at a certain point, Jesse is not in the North Carolina documents anymore. It appears that Jesse was quite a capable person because he managed to get from Perquimans County in northeastern North Carolina all the way to northwestern Vermont. I think he must have gone by boat, and that was the fast way. I mean, if you got on a boat, you know, you could be up in Boston Harbor. Jesse ended up right here, in Ferrisburg. The Robinsons gave him a job on their farm and paid him money for his work. And we know that because he saved up $150. And if you were working as a farm laborer in Vermont in 1837 and you earned $150, that would be a lot of money. This helps answer part of Carly's question about whether escaped slaves could live here openly. Jane figures if Jesse was working on the farm... Obviously he wasn't in hiding. So anyway... Jesse was working for a wage, and he saved up 150 bucks. And he saved it for a very specific purpose. He wanted to buy his freedom from Ephraim Elliott, the slave owner he ran away from. The other part of this story is that Ephraim and Jesse were almost the same age. Jane says that means they'd probably grown up playing together on the farm in North Carolina. So when Ephraim gets a letter from Rowland Robinson, the owner of Rokeby, about Jesse wanting to buy his freedom... Ephraim's reaction isn't what you'd think. His response to Rowland is like, oh, you know, Jesse was a man I had great regard for. I'm in hopes that he will do well. If he would like to come back, I would love to see him. Ephraim doesn't send someone to recapture Jesse. He wishes him well. Jane thinks there was something else going on here, too. She says, look, Jesse was savvy enough to get himself out of slavery. Ephraim Elliott, on the other hand, 
never really acquired much more land than what he inherited from his father. Ephraim maybe wasn't the greatest businessman. He was also illiterate. I looked at a number of documents, which he marked with an X. So there seems to be some difference in how capable they were, or how ambitious, or whatever kind of the agency of the two guys was askew. So, you know, Jesse may have just thought, this guy's going nowhere, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> Who knows? But he did something very hard. This is what Jane means when she talks about nuance. And really make it less about these kind of cardboard cartoon characters who, you know, do the same thing in every story. They're just wonderful white people and evil slave catchers. And in those stories, the slave loses out. So that's not good because they're the star of the story. I often say that many of these people managed to get themselves completely out of slavery and into the North, and all of a sudden they seem to fall apart and turn into these frightened, shivering fugitives. Now, they may be cold, and they may be frightened, but it has not stopped them from moving through the land to get to freedom. This is Dr. Cheryl Jennifer LaRoche. She's an archaeologist and historian, and she teaches at the University of Maryland. She's also the author of a book called Free Black Communities and the Underground Railroad, The Geography of Resistance. Cheryl makes an important point about how the history of the Underground Railroad is told. She says it's really one-sided. We have this uh, inequality in access to literacy. And so many of the people who worked on the Underground Railroad, Quakers, for example, who are diarists, who write, as opposed to a people who have been legislated into not being able to read or write. So there is a great unevenness in the record that's left behind. This is definitely true at Rokeby, where generations of very literate Robinsons left behind 15,000 letters. But there's nothing written by Jesse or any of the other fugitives who pass through. So much of African-American history is on the cutting room floor. That being said, there are a handful of free Black Vermonters who show up in a big state report about Vermont's Underground Railroad. And at least one of them was literate. Luden Langley. He's an African-American man, very active, a, a real letter writer to the newspapers on abolition. Luden Langley lived in Hinesburg, in a community of African-American farmers known as Lincoln Hill. And along the way, he happens to mention in passing that he is uh, putting up a, uh, a fugitive. This is Ray Zerbliss, the historian we heard from earlier. And back in 1996, in the era of Brandon's walking tours, Ray published an exhaustive study of all the Vermont Underground Railroad activity he could find, from hard records to oral histories. There were five categories of ratings from this is absolutely an Underground Railroad um, identified structure or this is a person who we absolutely can prove was active on the road to at the bottom a person or place where there is no evidence and only a, you know, a whisper of a possibility. And he found hard proof that 25 Vermonters were Underground Railroad activists. This was category A. The category A activists were Quakers, clergy, free blacks, and they were mostly spread along what today is Vermont's Route 7 corridor, from Bennington to St. Albans. People and sites in categories B through E get harder to prove and more spread out across the state. One Category A activist in Ray's report is in Montpelier, a guy with a great name. Yeah, Chauncey Knapp. Another great thing about Chauncey Knapp is that he actually sheltered a fugitive slave when he was Vermont's Secretary of State. There's a politician who's doing something, you know. 
This was in 1838. Chauncey Knapp helped out a young man named Charles Nelson. Charles hadn't traveled on his own all the way up from the south. He'd actually been brought along on his master's honeymoon to Niagara Falls. So Charles escaped from the hotel and ended up at Rokeby with the Robinson family. They sent Charles to Knapp, and Knapp wrote a very jaunty letter back to the Robinsons to say that uh, Charles had indeed arrived safely and that they were sitting in his office, Secretary of State's office in the State House. This is the old State House before the fire. But, um, you know, how wonderful to think of this teenager newly having escaped from slavery and being there in the State House. All told, Ray found documentation for 29 fugitives passing through Vermont between the 1830s and the 1850s. But he says those numbers are really shaky. On one hand, there are not that many, though many more than I've been able to track down. Of course, in terms of oral history, in terms of tradition, one person or out of one moment, the myth may kind of locate in a given town. And this brings us back to Brandon. There's nothing from Brandon in Category A of Ray's report, where we have the best evidence. But less substantiated activity in town does show up in Categories B, C, and D. And one of those sites was the crown jewel of Joan Thomas's walking tour. The Marsh House Mansion, which is on Pearl Street. Kevin Thornton and another Brandon history buff named Blaine Cliver took me to see it. Oh, wow, it's it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. The man who built the house, Rodney V. Marsh, was a high-profile abolitionist in Vermont. This massive Greek revival house was finished in 1853, and it has a very special reputation. You know, there's rumors that there was a tunnel. This is Hoyt Gahagan. He's the fifth owner of the Marsh house. But We haven't actually found the tunnel. I know a lot of people have tried to, but there's parts in the foundation wall where it has been patched. So whether there was a tunnel there at some point, we're not sure. Joan Thomas says she saw the tunnel when she was a young girl. She used to babysit for the family that lived in the Marsh House. Down cellar, there was a big hole. So one day... The oldest boy was always coming home from school and going down there with his friends and playing. Well, I went down one day because it was pretty quiet down there. And they had gone through this hole, and they were in this tunnel. Where would that have been a tunnel to? Uh, across the street. There's several houses, um, and behind those houses, there's a very s- steep bank. And that tunnel went down to the railroad tracks. And so basically the thought was is that they would get off the train and come up the ravine on the other side of the street into the basement of those houses. The tunnel also went across the road there. And then across the street underground and into the basement of this house, and then they would hide in this house. What do you guys think about that theory? Well, that doesn't make much sense to me because you'd have to dig a pretty good tunnel and it'd be easier just to run across the street. That's what we heard when we moved into the house. That Oh, yeah, there was a tunnel that went to that house over there. and and But, you know. Yeah, I think the Underground Railroad as a metaphor is too powerful uh, because it makes people think... Kevin and Blaine are very skeptical of this story and many others that gave rise to Brandon's Underground Railroad tour. But even though Hoyt's not sure about his house, he's open to other stories. Oh, I think this whole town was engaged in it. I really do. And this is the power of oral history. 
Yes, sometimes it veers into rumor and exaggeration. The Marsh House is probably a good example. But not all historians are dismissive of it. Not even Ray Zerbliss. Rather than have people simply shut up, you know, I, I'd rather have people tell the stories and bring them up and pass them on to their kids. And then we in the present or, or the future can look at the cases and, and make our own determination. This is why Ray included places like the Marsh House in his big report. The house has no hard records that we know of, but it's had these stories swirling around it for so long. With all the smoke, maybe, maybe there's a little bit of fire. And of course, they're feel-good stories, too. They say something about uh, how we wish to imagine ourselves. The Underground Railroad has proven to be a sturdy vehicle for people to feel good about themselves, particularly white folks um, sort of patting themselves on the back. Because, right, a lot of stories, at least in Vermont, have been passed through generations of mostly white people. But Dr. Cheryl LaRoche, whom we heard from earlier, says oral histories are an important part of her efforts to surface African-American stories in Underground Railroad history. I say that that is a research component, that we do not dismiss these things learn how to use oral histories responsibly, take them seriously. And Cheryl says based on little clues she sees in Ray Zerblis's report, there's potential for more research into the African-American narrative in Vermont. You might not have the same type of network, which is a, a loose, I'm using that term very loosely, let's say connectedness that we might see in other places. But I would be willing to bet that you have a very powerful narrative here of African-American involvement. At the end of my tour of Brandon, Kevin Thornton and Blaine Cliver bring me to one last spot with some important history. Bob, we're here. The Baptist Church. It's the locus of anti-slavery in Brandon. The Brandon Anti-Slavery Society met here for years. The Vermont Anti-Slavery Society had its convention here. Their activity, starting in the 1830s, is well documented. Organizing, arranging speakers, women would do things like knit mittens for runaway slaves in Canada. They'd petition constantly. And Kevin says they made a difference. It's just that meetings and petitions don't make for great stories. So they take a back seat to the Underground Railroad. And they weren't just in Brandon. Over here. Roke Bee Museum has an entire exhibit devoted to the abolitionist movement. Again, Jane Williamson. That legacy is something we really want to honor. I mean, the issues that the Robinsons worked at have not gone away. I think racism is just remarkably resilient. You can pass laws and make changes that cut it off here and cut it off there, but it it's like water, you know, it's worms around, it finds another way, and that's what it, it just keeps doing that. And it's a big deal right now. Dr. Cheryl LaRoche says that's why history is so important, because it helps us understand the present. If you had a deep knowledge of African American history, nothing that is happening today would surprise you in the least. One would know that our country and its promises have yet to be fulfilled. Or, or let's say are partially fulfilled and have, we have a long way to go. That's VPR's Angela Evansy reporting. She had editing help from Henry Epp and Brave Little State received support from the VPR Innovation Fund. 
You can listen to this episode in its entirety and all of Brave Little State's great episodes at bravelittlestate.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, forget about utility poles. What does New England weather do for our souls? It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. The nights were cold this week, and so were the days. The sun, when it appeared, flashed like a coin at the bottom of a well, and the rain fell whenever it felt like it. That's the opening line to an essay by Boston-area writer Will Dowd, aptly describing the beginning of November. The essay comes from Areas of Fog, Dowd's first published collection. He wrote the book over the course of a year in the tradition of Thoreau's Walden. Each essay opens with a weather report. Many of these essays pay homage to great New England writers like Thoreau, Frost, and Dickinson, writers who helped to shape our spiritual understanding of a region where weather can feel like the work of a fickle god. Will Dowd, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me, John. Why did you want to write about the weather? Well, I was uh, suffering from a bout of writer's block. It was particularly virulent strain. And I realized the brilliance and wisdom in our annoying regional habit of, when we have nothing to talk about, talking about the weather. And so I used the weather as a way out of writer's block. Um, for a year, I kept a weather journal. And each week, I would open up an essay uh, usually the first paragraph talking, recapping the weather of the week, and then I would sort of improvise and let myself free associate and talk about what else was preoccupying me. The format of your book is a kind of a weather journal, and, and it draws off a lot of inspiration from, from Henry David Thoreau. T- tell me about, about that inspiration, maybe the inspiration of some of the other uh, great writers of New England lore who have spent their time musing about the weather that we experience here. Yeah, New England has this long literary history of poets and philosophers and preachers all uh, concerned with the weather and using the weather in different ways for their own literary and philosophical ends. The central question, I think, that you find through all of them, and I'm thinking of both uh, the Puritan sermonizers, uh, Thoreau and Emerson, the transcendentalist, and then the later poets like Dickinson and Frost, the, the uh, concern with the weather that they all had was, is this sort of the, the pen of God? Is, you know, is the weather the creative expression of a, a, a deity? Or is it just the, the random chaos of an indifferent universe? And so uh, the weather is this really fantastic common thread that New England writers have always been able to use to wrestle with big metaphysical questions. I'd like you to read, if you could, uh, one of the essays in your book. It gets to the question of, of weather in the New England psyche. It's called an unwholesome sultriness. Could, could you read that for us? Absolutely. A certain unwholesome sultriness. The first week of September brought forth a heat so biblical that we New Englanders wandered around mopping sweat from our eyes and confessing to uncommitted murders. Finally, a long forecast storm arrived on Saturday evening and lit blue matches in the sky. Thunder rumbled like the apneic snores of a sleeping god. 
That metaphor, thunder as the awful voice of God, comes straight from the Puritans. I always think of them around this time of year, when we're in the throes of late summer mugginess. I imagine them bundled up in their corsets and petticoats and capes and linen caps, and I wonder how they clung to sanity. I suppose they had their faith, yet how much consolation did they find in their Calvinist reading of the world? According to their belief in predestination, a few select souls will spend the afterlife in unimaginable seraphic bliss while the rest are damned to hell. And here's the rub. Just who is saved and who is damned is fixed before birth, before time began, in fact. All that's left to do is to worry. To me, it seems predestined that the Puritans should have ended up in New England. Is there a better climate on earth for worrying about the state of your soul? If you can't feel God's grace, just wait five minutes. Puritan sermons were, of course, full of weather. From high pulpits, preachers bellowed about hellfire humidity and clarifying frosts. In my life, I've never delivered a single sermon. Here goes. In August 1637, in Hingham, Massachusetts, just a few miles from where I live, a woman named Anne Needham Hett was in such distress over her spiritual estate that she threw her newborn daughter into a well. Now I am sure I shall be damned for I have drowned my child, she announced. Someone rushed to the well and pulled the girl out in time. Five years later, in the same state of mind, Anne stripped her three-year-old son naked and threw him into the deepest section of the creek behind her house. Someone passing by dove in and pulled the boy out in time. This was the last straw. Anne was whipped and excommunicated, and when she was allowed back into the fold a year later, it was only because she had reconciled herself to abiding uncertainty. She had to live the rest of her life not knowing what weather awaited her after death. Of one thing, however, Anne Needham Hett could be certain. Her daughter and her son were definitely among the saved. Hmm. This idea is something that we've explored on the, on the show before. I'm wondering how much you feel that the Puritans are still with us today in New England. Well, the Puritans saw the weather as this running commentary of God's mood and judgment on the state of their souls. And I think we still all subconsciously at some level subscribe to this belief because we always talk about the weather as if it's this sentient being, this kind of trickster God who could like make it rain on your outdoor wedding on a whim or hand you like a perfect beach day on, you know, the day you took a, took off work. Um, so I think it's very much still with us. Uh, maybe to move to a more modern reference that you make, you, you write that Boston has replaced Los Angeles as the go-to backdrop for noir cinema. And it's certainly something we've seen over the years. Lots of crime dramas, very darkly lit. Um, what do you think that that's, that's done a little bit to our psyche? Yeah, it's really funny how that happens. I mean, it was this trend that happened for, a, you know, a c combination of reasons. We had some Bostonian movie stars who had clout in Hollywood and could set movies where they grew up. I'm thinking of the Afflicks and Matt Damon. You know, to me, it's what's what's really compelling is what happens to a city and a region when it sees itself reflected on the screen. And suddenly, to me, it becomes a little bit self-conscious. You start to see the stereotypes and then inhabit them. Um, 
And so I think what was before sort of maybe just a more natural regional habits of speech and talk has become more of a parody. Um, and, you know, you see that more and more. Uh, you know, I, I like, I think regional differences are really important. I think we there's a tendency in this kind of globalized world for things to become homogenized. And so I would hate for our distinctive New England character to become somehow inauthentic. I'm not sure how you preserve it, but I'm certainly still interested in the past, especially the literary New England past, and I think it's good to hold on to it. A last thing for you. Do, do you have the sense around this time of year as, as October leaves, November comes on us, and we start to think about the winter, that, that we have to prepare for a, for a long, cold winter? How, how do you do that personally to, to get ready for what you know is going to be some tough months ahead? Yeah, I try to psychologically prepare myself for a kind of um, emotional hibernation <laughs> where you desensitize yourself uh, because, you know, I, I actually find that the, f- the first half of the winter where you've got this lineup of holidays pretty tolerable because it's sort of festive. Um, but once you get past New Year's day and you face that long march through wi- through the winter when there's not many holidays and it's it's just gloom i just you know i i try to shut off my uh, uh thoughts of the outside world not think about it not focus on it and just kind of hole up until uh the sun comes out again the the bleak midwinter indeed um the book is called areas of fog and the author is will dowd will thank you so much and congratulations on the book Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Will Dowd's collection of essays, Areas of Fog, is out this month. He has book events coming up in Braintree in Amherst, Massachusetts. There's more info on our website, nexttonewengland.org. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Mike Perlmutter and Alex Bronstein. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Laboon for their song, New England. If you like this week's show, you can follow our Facebook page at Next New England. We've got stories around the region, videos, and more. That's facebook.com slash nextnewengland. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Melville Charitable Trust and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR 90.5.